Hello, everyone. Welcome to Freedom Talks. This is Brady, and today I'm here with Dr. Mustafa Khan. Uh, he is an American board-certified orthopedic surgeon specializing in spine surgery. Uh, he's passionate about getting to know his patients' health goals so he can help them achieve optimal function and freedom from pain. Uh, and as well, I'm also joined by physical therapist Erin Buffuno. She is a physical therapist at Freedom Physical Therapy who is also passionate about helping patients move with freedom, f- with freedom and restriction from pain. How are both of you guys today? Good, thank you. We're good. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Uh, So Dr. Khan, uh, getting kind of right into it, we kind of want to get to know you and get to know your kind of philosophy on healthcare and what you've been doing. And also you've uh, started a very exciting YouTube channel trying to educate patients and people about spine surgery. So um, we're glad to have you on. And can we kind of start with uh, your background and... um, your education, um, and then how you eventually became very passionate about spine surgery. Sure. Uh, thank you for having me, Randy. Um, so I, um, the process of becoming an orthopedic surgeon is a very long process. I undergrad went to University of Minnesota and went to med school at University of Pen- Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. And I did my residency at the University of Pittsburgh. And I finally finished up my spine surgery fellowship at Rush University in Chicago. I've been in practice uh, since 2008. Uh, so I've been in practice for about 15 years. And my surgical interests are adult spine surgery of all kinds. So basically patients who have any kind of a cervical, lumbar, or a thoracic spine problem uh, includes herniated discs, spinal stenosis, uh, sciatica, and things of that nature. But the one thing that I always tell my patients is that 90% of the patients who come and see me end up not needing surgery. So even though I am a surgeon, my job involves taking care of patients, not only surgically, but also in helping them get to the right physical therapist, get the right non-operative treatment. So that in summary is my background and training. And so uh, why were you drawn to the spine, I guess, as your specialty, as you kind of moved through the the med school and residency processes? What drew you to that? So that's an excellent question. I did my residency at University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, which is one of the country's most premier orthopedic residency programs and orthopedic teaching programs. And it just so happened that uh, my mentors at University of Pittsburgh um, were fantastic in the spine department, and they were just they just became like a great um, source of inspiration for me. And I saw firsthand how much they were able to help their patients with some very severe spine problems, uh, which includes not just arthritis and disc herniations, but we also did a lot of trauma work. People who are involved in car accident falls, other types of injuries. So during my residency of six years, where I also did a whole whole lot of research, I was able to see how much we were able to help patients with some very severe spinal problems. And as I progressed through my residency, I slowly began to understand that, you know what, this is something that I could be interested in. And eventually that's what I uh, ended up doing. So that's how I ended up in spine surgery because you can really make a big difference in the lives of people um, in all you know, all across uh, this the uh, spectrum of society, of all ages, of all professions, and uh, really give them a meaningful improvement. Um, so just curious about some of those, like you mentioned, uh, 
that Pittsburgh Health Center being one of the premier uh, hospital systems in the country, uh, was there anything in particular that stood out to you that was either jarring or uh, fascinating from your perspective coming from uh, where you did med school um, and your previous experiences and that kind of have stuck with you um, through coming back to Wisconsin? So, when you train at any institution, for example, I started my um, medical training at University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Each hospital system has its very distinct culture, and it has us, uh, it's sort of like an individual, it's got its own personality. And then when you move to a different hospital like University of Pittsburgh, that too has its own, um, own distinct personality. So comparing the two hospitals and the different types of training that you get at either one of those places, it, it kind of adds to your life in a different way. So um, med school at University of Pennsylvania was uh, very, very competitive. It was, uh, it was very challenging and taxing. And residency, similarly, at University of Pittsburgh was we were extraordinarily busy. We just... Uh, um, uh, we used to work well over 100 hours a week. And uh, in the third year of my residency, we cut down from 100 plus hours of working a week to a maximum allowable of 80 hours a week. And that's where things stand right now. So uh, when I started my uh, medical and surgical training, uh, it was uh, it was sort of like baptism by fire. <laughs> Well, you kind of get used to it, and that become that makes you very disciplined. That makes you very motivated. Um, that makes you very efficient. That makes you very confident, um, and that allows you to handle things very rapidly and to kind of like assess a big problem very quickly and um, get to some good real life solutions. So I think the whole process of becoming a doctor in general and a surgeon in particular, it's it's a very difficult process, and as you're going through it, sometimes you you wonder and you ask yourself, am I doing the right thing? But once you've once you kind of get through that process and you come out on the other side and you kind of catch your breath, you get you start your practice, you realize that it was worth it because time is going to pass regardless of what you do in life. It's just a question of doing the right things and getting to a destination where, you know, you can make a difference in other people's life and you can become a better person at the end of it. So I think even though my training process, just like just like any other orthopedic surgeon or surgeon in general, was very difficult and very challenging, I'm, um, I, I think it made me a better person. It made me a better human being and certainly a better surgeon. Well, that's a great answer. Um, that's that's amazing. And um I imagine, uh, like you said, baptism by fire is a little bit stressful when you're working 100 hours a week and getting everything thrown at you. Um, and so kind of you, you went from there and kind of moved back to the Wisconsin area directly after that. Is that correct? So after that, I was uh, at academic practice. Uh, I practiced at the University of Ohio, and uh, I've been in the uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin area for about uh, five years. I came here in 2017. Okay. So now I'm, I'm in private practice and I moved away from academia. Um, and was that always the intention for you is to move into private practice uh, away from academia or was there something that you were like not pleased with in academia or you had simply done what you wanted to do in that spot? 
Um, the advantage of being in academics when you're young is that you get to see a lot of very difficult surgical problems that you would not see in private practice. So being in that very tough environment where you're taking a lot of call, doing a lot of very difficult cases that nobody else wants to do, it gives you a lot of experience, a lot of confidence. And I think from there, it's a very nice and natural transition to move into private practice. So it was not really planned, but that's uh, how it turned out. And actually, I think it worked out for the best. Um, And so kind of moving into your private practice and what you're doing now, you had mentioned earlier about uh, being able to affect large groups of the population and kind of seeing um, all of the groups of the population in some way, shape or form with the patient populations. Um, so who are you you know, currently seeing and um, kind of what are you uh, really excited about in terms of your current practice? So that's a very deep question, which will, uh, which has many components to it. So I see mostly adults, although I do see uh, some older teenagers. Uh, for example, um, I see a lot of you know young athletes, high school athletes, 16, 17, 18 year olds, with you know back and neck problems, um, and um, all the way across uh, you know the the next several decades, I see people who are in the 70s, 80s, and even 90s. So each age group has its own particular set of challenges and uh, problems that you need to consider. For example, if you're a teenager or in your early 20s, um, a lot of those patients are very, very active. They have a very high physical demand. Whereas patients who are in their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, as time goes on, their activity level and their demands and their own expectations are significantly less. So I see a whole spectrum of different ages with very different problems that within each age group. And that's what makes my job uh, very interesting and challenging. And Aaron, I think uh, a little bit, uh, you're kind of seeing that broad range of patients as well. Um, we're not necessarily a sports-specific uh, physical therapy place or a, a kind of geriatric uh, physical therapy place we see across the whole population. Um, what has your experience been um, working with a lot of the spine patients and uh, having to communicate with doctors like Dr. Khan uh, when you're in your practice? So one of the most interesting things about treating like a very broad age age range, so just kind of like Dr. Khan mentioned, is treating people from the age of 12 to the ni- into their 90s, uh, various back-related, neck-related issues, is managing expectations. So that's, I think, truly the biggest piece is the majority of people that come in, if they have a disc-related issue or they have a spinal arthritic-related issue, so many people have some preconceived notion of what they've read online or they heard someone say that they had a back problem once and then they were disabled and couldn't go to work and so I think the big thing in terms of managing expectations preconceived notions things they've learned from other people is actually the biggest hurdle because one of the highest things that we see is fear-based anything in terms of spine pain is once you have spine pain once again most people know someone that has had an associated issue and whether you couldn't go to work one day or you had trouble lifting your children or it doesn't have to be you become disabled and can't do your job for the rest of your life it can be multiple things where you even missed a family vacation because you couldn't get off the couch because your back hurt so bad so teaching people how to understand what pain is how to manage it when to know when to take a step back but those step backs mean different things so in a six 
16 year old soccer player that has a muscle strain, that's very different than maybe a 30 year old that has a disc related problem. So all those step backs can mean very different things for different age groups and can mean very different things based off of their own personal history of back pain. So it sounds, at least uh, from my perspective, that uh, kind of misconceptions and perception of uh, different care is, is greatly going to uh, affect treatment. Um, now, when you're talking about managing those specific expectations, and um, do you find that there's a lot of maybe misinformation that you have to combat? And it sounds like a lot of patient education coming from, from both of you that uh, is big for your patients, correct? Yes. So like the bit, one of my biggest, I would say, pet peeves is when people come in and say they they blew a disc. So, and it's just my own personal pet peeve. Everybody has their own thing. But um, when we injure a disc, which Dr. Khan will know a little bit more in detail than I do, just because he's seen them inside the body, um, which I can say I have not. But when you say you blew a disc, it has such a negative connotation to it. Like you picture it blowing up. You And, and essentially in a form that is kind of what's happening. But once you think of something blowing up or it blew, you have this such a negative view in your mind that like I can't come back from this and I think that's one of those biggest hurdles people like I can't move and then they start moving like a stick they are holding their breath every time they move they're not twisting they're not moving and some of that we do want patients to hold off in the beginning just to let their body calm down and heal but the sooner we can restore some level of normal motion again within some limits and teaching them how to modify their activity based off of that is so important to know. And I'm like, you injured a disc. Your discs can heal. It's not one part of our body that can't. Some people, it maybe doesn't heal as well as other people, but understanding that just because it blew, it didn't blow up and it's gone forever. You still have a disc, it's still there. It can close up, it can partially heal. But understanding just because it's injured once doesn't mean it's going to be gone forever. Dr. Khan, specifically when it comes to disc herniations, I know I was looking at uh, some of the images that you had on your website. Uh, something you obviously deal a lot with. Do you do you find some of the same misinformation with patients, or specifically when it becomes comes to disc herniation? Um, like how does a typical appointment go? And like you said, uh, you said 90% of your patients don't actually go to surgery for you. So I guess in, in which cases are they are they going to be a surgical candidate? And in what other cases are you going to take a different approach? So I just want to say that Erin basically stole my thunder and she basically said <laughs> everything I was going to say about it. So first of all, I agree with Erin, uh, what she said. Um, before talking about particular spine problems, I think my first job as a physician and also as a surgeon is to educate my patients, right? So before you can talk about how to fix a quote unquote disc problem, you have to understand what the disc is and why it's important, what the function is, uh, what is the uh, what are the biomechanical considerations of the spine, right? So you have to kind of understand all of these things before being able to evaluate a disc that's not functioning properly or that's herniated or that's degenerated. And then you have to kind of take the next step of how do you make that problem better, either with physical therapy or with medications or injections. 
So what I would add to um, what Aaron already talked about is that there's a lot of fear uh, amongst people when they injure their back. Um, and that's totally understandable. Uh, back pain it can be very debilitating. Spine problems can be very debilitating. And when somebody has a back problem, they ask around, they get a lot of different answers and suggestions and stories uh, from people that they know either at work or personally that give them a lot of information, which unfortunately turns out not to be true. Where you see that a lot is, for example, uh, with um, things like, you know, a sciatica, which is probably the most common example. Uh, Patients, when they come and see me for severe sciatic symptoms, for example, um, these people can't walk, they can't drive a car, they can't go to work, they can't take care of their little kids. Uh, Basically, their whole life is turned upside down. But when I send them to physical therapy, give them a little bit of short course of anti-inflammatory steroids, give them some muscle relaxers, or maybe even give them an epidural injection. Two weeks later, their life has turned uh, upside down for the better. So uh, just like Aaron said, there's a lot of misinformation. And as a physical therapist, as a surgeon, as a physician in general, your number one, the first thing you have to do is to educate your patients about what is the problem that you're dealing with? What is the prognosis for the majority of patients and how we can help you get from here till uh, there? And then um, I'm just a little bit curious as to currently in your practice, is there a certain surgery that you find yourself doing like the majority of cases you're doing fusions or disectomies or disc replacements or what is what is it currently that is uh, kind of or is it just a broad range and there's not one specific uh, surgery that you find yourself doing? So there's a broad range of of surgical uh, cases that I do. Um, And I would say that for any, you know, practicing spine surgeon in the community, on average, two out of three surgeries are on the lower back, on the lumbar spine. About one out of three surgeries is the cervical spine. So that's roughly a ratio which probably will hold true for the vast majority of surgeons. When it comes to the cervical spine, the most common surgeries that I will do will be the anterior cervical discectomy infusion. That's for patients who have a pinched nerve in the neck causing shooting pain going down in the arm. And we go in and we remove that degenerated disc, we unpinch that nerve and we stabilize the spine uh, with a plate and screws. Uh, As far as the lumbar spine is concerned, the three most common surgeries are discectomies where we just kind of go in and take a small piece of the disc out through a minimally invasive approach. The second is what's called a uh, a laminectomy where we make a bigger incision and do a more um, involved decompression and free up the nerves at multiple levels. And the third one is where the situation needs something a little bit on a higher level where we do the laminectomy with a fusion where we have to stabilize the spine by fusing it using some hardware uh, rods and screws. So those are on a on an average average day, average week, every uh, average month and average year. Those are the most common surgeries that I do in my practice, which I think is probably very similar to most surgeons uh, in the community. So I guess uh, I think what would be beneficial for patients or potential patients or someone who's dealing with spine issues to kind of hear uh, is maybe the process that a patient would go through um, 
A, to, to eventually see you and get diagnosed and do all of the testing, but maybe what it's like uh, to go in for uh, an evaluation. And then also maybe when is physical therapy involved or what other types of healthcare treatments are involved with most of your patients? So to get an appointment with me, uh, you can get my contact information at my website, MustafaKhanMD.com. And you can just call the number and uh, I'll be happy to schedule you at any time if you have any kind of back problem or neck problem. And what's interesting is that the vast majority of patients who come and see me with neck and back problems, they already have an established relationship with usually with a physical therapist because they either had a knee problem or a hip problem or a shoulder problem. And when I see that patient, I will usually send them back to their physical therapist that they've worked with and prescribe them some medications and then see the patient back in a couple of weeks for a follow-up. If they're doing well, um, we just sit tight and just kind of see how things go, uh, maybe adjust the medications a little bit. But if they're still having problems, the next step usually is to get an MRI. And based on the MRI, we can just either sit tight, see how things go, or try some cortisone or epidural injections. But if the problem is quite severe and is still not getting better, then we can talk about a surgical option as, uh, as the next step. And then post surgery, what um, what are the like? I guess maybe if even if it's a question for Aaron, like uh, what patients are you seeing pre or post surgery for spine? Um, I guess pre would be like someone that you see, and then you're referring to Doctor Khan and saying, "Hey, look, I think this is more than um, you know, mus- some muscular issues or something that you can correct, uh, and that you need to get uh, help from." Uh, an orthopedic surgeon and then what are, are who are you who are you generally seeing for rehab like is it the fusions is it the disectomies is it all of the above um does that make sense yep um so in terms of pre-surgical patients like i would say the majority most therapists would probably say this i'd say anywhere from 50 to 75 percent of your caseload is probably someone that has some form of a low back related issue it is just one of the most heavily diagnosed or heavily used diagnosis codes that at least that we see so most most therapists at least should have some general ability to be able to treat a low back or cervical related issue, um, just because it is unfortunately very common. So in terms of preventative, I like to generally see a patient's reduction of pain within two weeks. If I have not touched the patient's pain at all in two weeks, then at that point I'm referring because something at that point we should have done at that should have made an improvement. And if there's been absolutely no change and especially if there's any nervous system involvement, that's also when it becomes a little bit more concerning. So I'm also addressing strength, looking at strength deficits, looking for numbness and tingling. Does the patient have any sensation? If we start to notice any complete loss of sensation, they might have numbness and tingling, but if there is absolutely, they cannot feel me touching their foot, can't feel me touching their leg, um, that's when I'm immediately referring for those situations because then we have more potential for nerve damage that's not reversible at that point. Um, when we talk about peripheral nerves, those are the nerves that are not outside of your spinal cord. Those have the option, they have the ability to regenerate, but if they've had too long of compression or irritation to them, they might regenerate a little bit, but then a patient could potentially have those issues for a really long time. So at that point, that's not something I like to mess with um, or do a wait and see. That's when that becomes more of a Dr. Khan territory than my own, um, because I would want someone to do the same thing for me, as I'm not going to just keep blindly treating someone, hoping that they'll get better. I would like to have them 
get seen sooner rather than later. And one of the, some of those medication options that Dr. Khan mentioned, like any sort of an oral steroid or a muscle relaxer when they're utilized the correct way and they work the way they should, usually within three to five days, the patient's pain is cut in half again when it works the way it should and at that point we're working on establishing better movement patterns if someone's in a lot of pain they're again not moving the right way again holding their breath and when you hold your breath it actually gives you more pain and so it makes it harder to move so trying to reestablish some newer patterns like that but biggest red flags like I would immediately send for in the clinic would be if anyone's having bowel or bladder issues. So if a patient comes in and you can't hold urine or it's if you can't hold it or you can't go, if you can't eliminate or evacuate both bowel and bladder, that's a huge concern. Any numbness or tingling, we call it the saddle region. So that's in between your thighs and your groin region. Um, and then bilateral. So both leg numbness and tingling, those are the things that I'm actually sending them that day. I'm, I'm not seeing them. I'm not finishing my evaluation. They're out the door because that becomes more of an emergent situation, not as common, not very often, but those are things that are well beyond my territory. But patients that have general run-of-the-mill low back pain, whether it's muscular in nature or joint-related irritation, we try to find where their problem lies. Do they have problems with sitting or is it standing? Because that tends to tell us a little bit more of what structures are involved and how we can, again, modify daily activities and then start to encourage some strength-based options. Uh, We utilize dry needling techniques at our clinic to help almost, I want to say, restart the inflammatory process. So if someone is outside of the first two to four weeks of an acute issue, if we utilize dry needling, it can help increase some blood flow to the area, flush out some of the inflammatory toxins and kind of help, I call it the control alt delete for your muscles. It just kind of restarts them, lets them reset and allows your body to develop some better movement patterns. So that'd be more pre-surgical. And then in terms of post-surgical options, um, really, I wouldn't say we'll see anybody, but as long as the doctor has okayed it and approved it and has some idea of a protocol, or if they say, go for it, do whatever you want and you feel comfortable with, then that's also an option. We generally have lifting restrictions depending on the surgery for anywhere from six to 10 weeks afterwards, just as we're letting bone parts heal if there's some sort of effusion. Um, Range of motion we do generally within comfortable levels. And again, mostly working on mechanics is someone's likely been lifting wrong their entire life. And everybody's like, oh, lift with your legs, but they might still be lifting with their back despite trying to lift with their legs. So again, working on more functional daily tasks. Um, Scar mobilization is a huge huge options. So even if some of the procedures are minimally invasive, the scars can get really bound down and that can limit your overall skin flexibility, which also affects muscle flexibility. So soft tissue work, incisional mobility, but generalized strength training and trying to, again, figure out what is the hardest thing for the patient to do at home and trying to help them find a way to do it better, easier, and with less pain. Long answer, sorry. (laughs) Uh, So Dr. Khan, I guess, I'm, I'm, I am curious of, I guess, almost your opinion of, of physical therapists. And just like in anything, there's better and worse physical therapists and some that you might like working with and some that you don't like working with. Um, just have you ever had, uh, you know, I'm sure there's lots of good experiences that you have, but have you ever had bad experiences where you're like, man, I really could have made a difference if I had seen this patient sooner? Um, I guess maybe almost almost like what do you wish physical therapists or other healthcare providers that are kind of outside like your surgeons or your primary physicians um, where you're like, I really wish they could know this about my practice and I really wish they knew I could help this patient in this way a lot faster. 
Yeah, so that's an excellent question. And first of all, I agree with you know everything that Aaron said. And uh, uh, the key is to understand what the main problem that you're dealing with it is, right? So there's certain red flags that Aaron talked about. If you can recognize those red flags and say, aha, you know, this is something which is a little unusual, a little bit dangerous. Let me just kind of send it over to um, to a surgeon to get evaluated. As long as you can pick up on the red flags, um, you can treat a patient as a physical therapist, um, you know, quite comfortably and uh, quite confidently without causing any significant or long-term damage to that patient. So to answer your very broad question, I'll just kind of break it up in a couple of uh, pieces. First of all, my experience with physical therapists is that as a profession, they're very, very They care about their patient very much. They're very professional and they always want to do the right thing. And a lot of the physical therapists that, you know, I work with, that I communicate with uh, all the time, but for regular patient care, they're very good about picking up on subtle um, signs and symptoms. You know, is the patient getting better? In that case, you keep on doing what you're doing, but has the patient kind of plateaued and are they not improving over time? Well, then you may have to tweak the physical therapy a little bit better. Um, and if for whatever reason, despite a consistent amount of physical therapy, just like Aaron talked about for, you know, two, three, four weeks weeks, the patient's function, pain, uh, and neurological issues are slowly kind of getting worse, then you have to kind of pick up on that red flag and send it over uh, for a surgical consultation. The other thing that um, the patient, that the um, physical therapists are very good about is they understand that as spine surgeons, we're very, very careful about making sure that we only operate on the patients who need an operation. And just because you send your patient that you've, you know, had a long-term relationship with, you know, you help them with their shoulder, their knee, their hip, and now they're having a spine problem. When you send that patient over to me, my goal is to see how I can help you as a physical therapist and kind of, you know, take care of this patient non-operatively. Now, in the course of that treatment, if things are not getting better, then I'll be happy to kind of, you know, uh, discuss with the patient a surgical treatment. I also want to add that I, in the, for the lumbar spine, you know, we have the option of doing some injections, epidural injections, which can be very, very helpful. And I do some of the lumbar injections myself. And for some other in type of injections, which I don't do, I will send the patient uh, to like a pain management doctor, which is also an important component of spine care. So, you know, the the, uh, the combination of physical therapy, medications, and uh, kind of a close pre-surgical evaluation kind of over a longitudinal period of time, I think that's what most patients need. And fortunately, because physical therapists are very well-trained these days, um, they're very good and diligent about kind of making sure that they um, take care of the patient uh, in a very conservative but um, consistent way so that hopefully they'll get better without surgery. Now, and this goes without saying, I'm a PT and Dr. Khan's obviously an ortho surgeon, but so we, I believe in the beauty of utilizing PT. He also believes in surgery with other options as well, but especially if you're someone that's listening to this and you have low back pain, you don't have 
any of those options, just do what works best for you. So we do dry needling, but some people have a great outcome with acupuncture. I know Dr. Khan has talked about that before um, in my communication with him outside of this podcast, but um, acupuncture, if you do Reiki, if you do massage therapy, anything that works for you, that's what you should do. Just because one person said it, again, you talk to your neighbor, you talk to the person at work, just because those people say that worked for them, you need to do this, doesn't mean you have to. You can always try it, but see what works best for you and what works best for your lifestyle and what's within what your means. And just try to, again, keep chipping away at your pain until you can get it to within a well-manageable level. Um, I, and I think what this is kind of shaping every time that uh, I, I do have a, you know, we have a guest on the podcast, I think it always comes back to no matter what they're practicing, um, is that you do need kind of this healthcare ecosystem of knowledgeable providers for your, your you know, whatever condition you're going through. So um, in that case, it sounded like that you could have multiple different professions involved in kind of helping you through your spine pain. Um, but ideally, in your eyes, Dr. Khan, um, you mentioned the pain management doc. What is the you know most common kind of ecosystem and group of healthcare providers that you see that patients need to utilize to have a well-rounded approach to approaching spine pain? So for the vast majority of cases of patients who have a uh, back or neck problem, for example, like a herniated disc or sciatica or radiculopathy, a spinal stenosis, each practitioner can help the patient with a part of the problem, right? So physical therapists can work on some mobility. The acupuncturist can work on some cardinal points. The uh, medical or therapeutic massage can loosen up the muscles. And the pain management doctor can do some cortisone injections. My job as a um, as a physician, as a surgeon, is to help coordinate all these aspects of care to make sure that, you know, each person is doing the best that they can for the patient. And if at the end that combined effort is successful, which it is about, you know, nine times out of 10, then, you know, uh, that's, that's a great victory. On the other hand, for the one out of 10 times or, uh, you know, maybe even less than that, when all of that concentrated care by these different medical practitioners is unfortunately not successful, then I can give the patient a surgical option to kind of treat that problem. So this is sort of like the ecosystem. And um, as long as you understand that every member of this team can provide something valuable, in general, for the vast majority of patients, you can have a very good outcome with or without surgery. Um, and so I guess kind of uh, a little bit piggybacking on top of that, that, you know, there's the very, the broader conversation of, of health care uh, in general and, you know, how the healthcare system is working with your patients and, and how you see patients. What is the one thing from both of your perspectives that if you could change about the way things currently work to make things better for patient care? Do you know what that would be? I'll let Aaron go first. <laughs> That's a tough one. Um, so I think the biggest answer I think everybody would want is more time. Like if everybody could have more time to spend with their patients, I think that is one thing I value so unbelievably. 
I just can't even put into words that we actually have at our facility is like I do have one on one time with my patients for 45 minutes, which that's not too horribly common in the PT world where you can actually utilize your insurance. Um, some places that are self pay, you can utilize that, but for an insurance based option, um, so I do get a lot of information from people in 45 minutes, either one time a week or two times a week, where I can ask all the questions I want to, as many open-ended questions during evaluation. But after you talk to somebody two or three times, you get all these small little pieces that they didn't think to tell you about, oh, it really hurts when I do this, but I didn't think of it until now. And I'm like, well, that's probably what's one of the main instigating causes. Let's figure out a different way to do that. So trying to figure out how can we set up their home, like a small version of their home in the room we're at, and how can I modify, like how can I help you get on the floor to play with your kid or your grandchild? so truthfully, more time. And then I wish people would, or therapists in general, would be, we are physical therapists. We are not pain and torturous. Like people have talked about that term for the longest time. And I think so many people on top of having a high fear avoidance behavior with low back pain related issues, then to think about going to physical therapy and having someone hurt you more. Um, our job is not to hurt people. If it hurts, it shouldn't hurt. And, um, some things might be uncomfortable at the time, but you, and you might feel a little sore after, but you shouldn't feel worse. Yes. There can be some days where it's a little bit more, but consecutively each treatment after one of the other should not be extremely painful to where then you can't function. And I think we've, I've seen that so many times, unfortunately, where patients will come in and like, don't want to come and they have such a negative feeling towards PT because when they did it before, all they did was hurt or all they did was exercise the whole time. And in some back-related issues, a hands-off approach and emphasizing exercise only for certain people with certain backgrounds and medical histories, that is the gold standard to follow. But for some people, that's not the best option and you have to utilize other things. So I don't love that about the PT profession that people, especially I teach up, I teach in um, a physical therapy program and even some of the kids, like they try kids, young students are trying to be really aggressive. I'm like, you don't have to push that hard. Just, you have to use your hands. You have to close your eyes and you have to see what you're feeling because you can feel a joint move without having to put your whole body weight into it. There is a total finesse that comes with a lot of the soft tissue work and the um, joint mobilizations we do that you don't have to lay into somebody super hard and make them hurt for it to be beneficial. And then Dr. Khan, from your uh, from from your point of view, uh, what is you know whether that's something with insurances, some some way the hospitals work, um, what would make your life and your patients' life so much easier um, in the, in the state of healthcare? So that's a very big question, and I I guess I could list you know ten or fifteen things. Uh, the biggest thing that comes to my mind is how expensive healthcare is and how stressful that is to a patient. So when a patient comes and sees me with, uh, for example, sciatica, right? So you uh, wake up one day and all of a sudden you have this burning pain going down your leg, you can't stand, and obviously you can't go to work. What do you do next? And 
not only are you dealing with a terrible physical problem, you're also dealing with employment, you're also dealing with the financial pressures, uh, you're also dealing with uh, now healthcare costs and the healthcare costs, I mean, people's deductibles are sky high. And that's one of the things that shocks me is, you know, if you have, you know, family of, uh, you know, uh, four, for example, how high people's deductibles are. And in these economic times, taking care of your children and taking care of, uh, you know, household. And on top of that, you have to, you know, put out, you know, four, six, eight, ten grand uh, of your own money just, you know, outside of your insurance covered costs. That is a very big burden on our society. And something like uh, if, if my numbers are correct, something like 60 or 70 percent of all bankruptcies in the United States are healthcare related. So. When I see a patient, you know, with a spine problem, I'm always mindful of that. Even though I may not talk to them about it, I want to make sure that I provide them with, with very efficient care, good care, high quality care. But I, you know, I want to send them to a place where they can get good care at a at a low cost, so that you know they they don't have the financial hardship because all of a sudden you can't work. And the second thing which really kind of bugs me about how healthcare is practiced is how complex and Byzantine the whole system is, right? Like the communication between uh, different medical providers, different hospital systems between the physical therapist and the, and the doctor, the doctor and the primary care physician, and all these different hospital systems and different providers have different uh, electronic medical records. So there is a lot of uh, difficulty with communication, So which is, which is why it's so great that, you know, whenever Aaron and I have a mutual patient, you know, we will just talk to each other about patient text and say, okay, well, let's speed up this process. This is working or this is not working. Let's change that. So I would say that, you know, the biggest things that I wish were different with the healthcare system, number one was how expensive it is. And number two, how complex it is and how difficult it is to work within the system and make the changes that you need to make because of the red tape and the bureaucracy. Um, hopefully uh, that, that continues to get better. I know those are big topics and big issues uh, to fix as a whole, especially uh, in the U.S. Um, so uh, before we get going, I do want to talk a little bit about your YouTube channel. Um, Spine Surgeon Speaks. Uh, you can find that on youtube.com slash spine surgeon speaks. Um, and can you kind of give us a little background on your channel and kind of what content people can expect when they go visit you? So I have my own website, MustafaKhanMD.com, where I have some sample images of uh, different types of surgery. So when a patient comes and sees me, I can show them what a C4-5 ACDF surgery looks like versus a, a th versus a lumbar laminectomy infusion. So they have an understanding of exactly, um, you know, what we're talking about. Also, um, when patients come and see me, uh, they have Googled their condition to the best of their ability. And there is a tremendous amount of good information and there's a tremendous amount of bad information. So it's a whole belt curve. Um, the reason I started my own channel was for patient education. So for example, when somebody comes in and sees me for a sciatica or lumbar radiculopathy or herniated disc, 
the conversation that I have with that patient is very similar to the patient that I saw, you know, the day before and the day before that and the day before that. So my goal in getting my channel Spine Surgeon Speaks on YouTube was to basically condense that discussion in the form of presentation that after seeing me, the patient can go home and watch that, you know, two, five, 10, 12 minute video and kind of get a refresher. Um, another fact, which is well known within the medical field is that when patients see a physician or a medical practitioner for a consultation, they have a limited amount of time, first of all. And whatever is discussed during that very brief 15, 30 or 45 minute visit, patient recall typically is very, very low. So when they go home and tell, you know, their spouse, um, uh, you know, what was talked about or, you know, the different things that were discussed and what the doctor said, unfortunately, because we're human beings, our memory is not perfect. So their ability to kind of remember that whole conversation and kind of remember the big points of that discussion um, are not as, you know, it's, it's not as good as it hopefully should have been. So I made this channel so I can have small bite-sized talks that, you know, you can watch whether or not you um, have a, a, a back or neck problem or if you just want to get educated. And over a period of time, I, I want to build a sort of like a database of talks that uh, people in our community and in the country and maybe even the rest of the world can kind of gradually come to as a resource. So I made my YouTube channel um only a couple of months ago, like four months ago, and I don't have uh, that many talks yet, but I'm constantly looking forward to adding to it. And uh, whenever I give my patients my card with my YouTube channel, uh, when they come back, they always tell me how helpful it was for them to kind of review that information after leaving uh, that visit. So they're better prepared for their follow-up discussion. So my goal with this, with my website, MustafaKhanMD.com, plus my YouTube channel, Spine Surgeon Speaks, is to serve as a uh, kind of like an educational tool for the patients. And uh, at some point, I also would like to kind of interview, you know, physical therapists, acupuncturists, um, you know, people from medical massage um, and uh, other different specialties to kind of add to this uh, patient resource. Perfect. And by the way, if you are listening to the podcast, you can find all the links um, to Dr. Khan's website and to his YouTube channel in the show notes. And if you're watching, it'll be in the description. Um, so feel free to check those out below and then um, utilize all those resources. I was watching a few of your videos before uh, we did the podcast. And like you said, very informative and the visuals are amazing in terms of being able to see exactly what you're talking about um, when you're doing those procedures, which I, I would imagine uh, if you're doing those uh, or if you're having that done to you, having a little bit of reassurance on what is actually going on, um, like you said, is, is very nice to have. Um, so is there anything uh, through our conversation that we missed and you feel like patients need to know uh, before we uh, get going? All set for the most part. I'll, I'll let you have the the first word here, and then I'll finish up. <laughs> I think one of the biggest things, which Dr. Khan mentioned himself, is yes, spine surgeons. Your job as a surgeon, but not every 
visit has to end in a surgery. So if you're scared to go see someone because you're scared to know what you're going to find out, it's important to know information at the same time. So you've been dealing with an issue for a long time. Just because you're going doesn't mean it always has to end in that in that direction of surgery. It might. Again, there's that percentage it will. But if you don't know and you've really been having trouble with something for a long time, it's not a bad place to start. And it's also great to have someone like that in your back pocket. So if you've had a history of, so if I have a patient that has a history of like multiple like disc injuries where they have irritation with a little symptom down the leg occasionally, but then it calms down on its own without medication, that's a person where I'm like, you should have someone like Dr. Khan in your back pocket. Like you should have someone you've seen, you've established care with. So if you do unfortunately get to that point where you need somebody then you already have that. That takes that whole fear that what do I do next, that what's next step. It takes that confusion and that nervousness out of the picture. So you have someone to go to and you you know who to see. Just like you have your dentist, like you get cleanings, but then you go there when you crack a tooth or you need a root canal. Hopefully you don't. But again, just like anything else, you have that person in your back pocket and they've already seen you. You've established care. So when you have that incident happen, you can go see them a lot faster because you're not a new patient. And that can be very reassuring if you have one of those instances where you wake up and and can't get out of bed or you can't sit because your sciatic symptoms are so bad. So sometimes having that already established care can be really helpful. What I will add to this, uh, uh, it's, it's kind of a little bit philosophical. Um, first of all, it is, I, I feel so honored and privileged uh, to be in a position where I can be a um, uh, where I can help people. And uh, that's not just a cliche. When I do my surgeries and I look at the inside of the human body, I'm just truly humbled and just always in awe of how amazing the human body is and how when it functions, we take it for granted. And when even a small piece of it, like a tiny herniated disc, which is about the size of a pea, when something that tiny uh, breaks down or pops out of place, how incapacitating it can be for, for the whole, for the whole organism, for, for us as a person. So there, there's just an unbelievable, unbelievable amount of um, just beauty and elegance to the human body, which as a surgeon, whenever I look at it, I'm always in awe. And I feel very, very blessed, uh, fortunate, lucky to be able to kind of tweak it a little bit uh, to make it work better. And having done thousands and thousands of surgeries, every surgery that I do, my level of wonder, uh, it does not go down. It actually goes up more and more with every year uh, because I see what a finely tuned machine the human body is and how important it is for us um, as human beings to take care of ourselves, to make sure that we take care of our general health. We make, make sure that we take care of our physical health, our mental health, and we do everything within our power to have just a good life. And this is where, uh, you know, Aaron and I come in. You know, Aaron will help the patient um, in one way, and I can hopefully help the patient in a different way. So I, I'm, I'm just very privileged and honored um, that, uh, you know, uh, I, I can do that for my patients, and hopefully I'll be able to do that uh, into the future. 
Well, it's certainly been a privilege and an honor to have you on as a guest, and it's been uh, really good having a conversation with you and and Aaron as well. So thank you both for coming on. Um, and like I said, uh, Dr. Khan uh, practices in the Milwaukee and Mequon, uh, Wisconsin area, and you can uh, find his website at MustafaKhanMD.com. That will also be uh, in all of the show notes. Uh, so thank you so much, and uh have a wonderful day and thank you for coming on our show it was my pleasure thank you brady thank you Aaron. yeah thank you